And Father, once more, as we take this time of our day, Lord, to get into your word, we just pray once more that you would show us, Father, the details of our faith. That, Lord, as we experience so much in our Christian lives, it's all contained in your word. And so, Father, just show us, Lord, this concept of prayer and how we may fall short at other times, but also, Lord, the wonderful grace that we find at your cross. And so, once again, as we open your word, just speak to us and guide us through it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you turn to greet your neighbors? Greetings. to talk to. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 59. We'll be starting at verse 1 as we're going verse by verse through the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 59 starting at verse 1. Remember the prophet is writing two things. In turbulent times to come, and that Israel, and this is the southern kingdom at the time, Judah is about to fall into Babylonian captivity, but also he's writing in the shadow of the cross. We saw in chapter 53, the cross of Christ. So everything is to be considered against the shadow of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Back then, it was Messiah who was promised to come. Today, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who has come. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 1. I'm just going to read the first two verses, and then we'll get into our study. The prophet says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Now, another well-known verse is 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. It reads, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now that verse in Second Chronicles, the context of that verse where it was given to uh, King Solomon by the Lord was at the dedication of the altar. Now, what was the altar? The altar was the place where sacrifice was made or, more importantly, to remember that sin was dealt with. Now, in the Old Testament, it was a covering of sin. Why? Because the only thing that could do away with sin is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so sins were covered up until that time when we had the altar of the Lord, which would be the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there was that ultimate sacrifice that was made upon that cross one time for everybody. All of those covered sins, they were then done away with. And all of the sins of humanity, all past, present, and future, God had dealt with it all. That now whoever would believe on him would not perish but have everlasting life. But now what we're looking at here in Isaiah and also in Second Chronicles is this combination of sin but also in prayer and how our prayers may be hindered because in chronicles the lord told solomon if my people are called by my name now if they will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways and so that speaks of a repentance and a getting right with god he says then i will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land now, why did their land need to be healed? Because a lot of times that was an outward sign or an outward manifestation of the sins of the people. Uh, we can see it today in the things that are going on today. I believe that, it's not so much that I believe, but it's a biblical fact that God is Lord over all creation. He spoke everything into existence. Creation is at God's disposal. And so he uses creation to reveal himself. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen through creation. And so God uses creation to get man's attention. He uses the earthquakes, the floods right now in Louisiana. They're, 
they're uh, suffering from some great floods, how many earthquakes, earthquakes seem to be going more towards populated areas, tsunamis, and just all of these natural disasters. We see the evilness of man, and all these things are going on. Why? Because God's knocking on the doors of men's hearts that you need to turn from me, and even the door of the church. You need to get in my word, and you need to seek me out. And so the reason the land needs to be healed is because, and again, Second Chronicles is directed towards God's people. And so God's people, it's a reminder to them that they need to repent, get right with God. Then what does God say? Then I will forgive their sin. And an extension of that is going to be a healed land. Now we know the things that we're experiencing today are headed towards the birth pangs of end times. We see times are getting more and more evil but I'm always of the mindset, maybe there's going to be one last great revival, that people will turn their hearts to the Lord, that the church would turn their hearts to the Lord, and because of that turning to the Lord, then we're going to see revival throughout the land. We'll see a turning of people from themselves, from their flesh, and turning to God. I'm an optimist. We're told in 1 Corinthians 13, love believes all things. I really believe. I don't necessarily believe it to that degree, but it's a definite possibility that the reason you do not see the United States of America in end times, because there was revival. People got saved in the majority, not all the country, I understand that, but got raptured. Raptured to such a degree that it reduced the country to a second degree country. I have to conduct my Christian life as if that, and we know all things are possible with God, as if that is a possibility. And that should spur me on in this great work of ministry. So, why does God not hear our prayers? Or why does he seem to not hear our prayers at times? There are many reasons in the Bible that it may seem as if God is not listening to our prayers. Well, with Daniel, he was praying, and, well, for him, the reason his prayers weren't answered right away, well, he was told that it's because of the element of spiritual warfare. In Daniel chapter 10, verses 12 to 13, this angel told Daniel, Do not uh, fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. So right away, as he spoke those words of prayer, God did physically hear them. He says, And I have come because of your words, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia, this would be either the devil or a demon, more than likely a demon, withstood me 21 days and behold Michael one of the chief princes came to help me for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia and so there was God intending to answer their this prayer now this is only because God allowed it to work this way more than likely for the teaching and training of Daniel and for us to glean from it but God allowed this spiritual warfare this hindrance of this messenger who was sent to answer his prayer for that period of 21 days. Let me ask you, have you ever prayed for anything for 21 days? Well, let me ask better. Have you ever prayed for anything for 20 days? And maybe you did. Well, have you ever prayed? No, I didn't pray for 21 days. Well, it was on the 21st day that the prayer was answered. Never stop, never cease, never give up, never quit. And so it seemed like God was not answering his prayers, but then Daniel learned, well, that was because of the concept of spiritual warfare. I should say the reality of spiritual warfare. For the Apostle Paul, why was his prayer not answered? And God says it wasn't answered along the lines that he desired for it to be answered, for the revelation of God's grace. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8-9, through 9, says, Concerning this thing, this thorn in the flesh, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, most gladly, I'd rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And so Paul prayed that this thing would go away. And in actuality, he kept praying, but God had already answered. And the answer was no. See, no is answered prayer. And we have to understand that and be on the same page as the Lord. And why? It was for the revelation of God's grace so that Paul would realize his humanness and all others would see him as he wrote this and realized Paul was just a man, highly blessed by God, very much used by God, but still he needed the grace of God. Thirdly, for the Lord, when the Lord prayed in that garden, it was because of the Father's will. 
Now, it's not so much the Lord, but from our perspective, why wasn't the Lord's prayer answered? It says in Matthew 26, 42, again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away, well, previously he prayed that it would, from me unless I drink it, but your will be done. And so you can say, well, why didn't the Father? He prayed that the cup would pass. If it be your will, allow this cup to pass from me. Well, obviously, it wasn't the will of the Father. And so I'd have to ask myself, ask you, the things that you pray about, the things that I pray about, am I praying for his will to be done or for my will to be done? I've got to consider that. I must consider if I'm praying and it just doesn't seem like God is hearing, although we'll see in a minute that he is, but he's not answering, am I praying according to his will? Well, for Israel in Isaiah's day and for the church today, it can seem as times if God does not hear our prayers, and the reason is simply because of the sin that is in our lives, the sin that hinders our prayers from being heard by God. Not that we have power over God, but we have God doing a work so that the sin issue would be uh, dealt with. We have James speaking of this in James chapter 4. I'll read it, verses 1 through 10. He says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure? He's speaking of the flesh. That war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. So he's speaking of sin. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Spirit says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us, he yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God gives grace to the proud, but I'm, I'm sorry, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, because of that, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So he's talking about dealing with sin. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And then he says to cleanse your hearts. And it, it would be really great if you could have pulled this out of the New Testament and given it to those guys back in Isaiah's day. You don't think that God's been hearing your prayer? Well, you need to draw close to him and you need to ask for forgiveness. If you could go back to Solomon's day, we need to make the sacrifice so that we are right with God, our sins are covered, and our prayers would be healed. This is the desire of the Lord that I need to see our realities in my life because it's those times when I'm in sin, in sin, when I have unrepented sin in my life. It doesn't have to be you know, the top ten, the nasty nine, or the dirty dozen. It's just when I'm, the sin that has allowed in my life, that has allowed separation to enter in. And I may pray, I may seek the Lord out, I may get into his word, and it just seems like God is far off. It's those times that I use that as a, something to spur me, to motivate me, to be reminded of the necessity of just asking God for repentance. Just that casual cleansing, maybe casual is too light of a word, but just that cleansing that we need. For us who have been cleansed, washed by the blood of Christ, we need still need that continual cleansing of repentance and forgiveness. So in these first two verses in Isaiah 59, I want to look at first two main things. First is the capability of God, and then secondly is the spiritual condition of man all under the context of prayer. So the first thing that we have again in verse 1 is, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. So when it comes to the capability of God, it's never a question of can he? It's always a question of will he? Or maybe I should say why won't he? And so when we pray, it's always a question of I know that God is able, but why is he not? Why is he not moving? Is it just me? Am I seeing things from an improper perspective? Have I allowed sin in my life or some of the other things that we looked at previously? But never is God's hand or his ability to weaken or his ear rendered deaf. You are a child of God. If you're a born-again believer in this place, you are a child of God. 
Jesus died on the cross and spilled his blood so that your prayers would be heard. So we know that the avenue has been opened there. And the avenue of prayer is available to us to approach Christ, to approach the Father inside the throne room. But when something's wrong in our life, the problem is never from the perspective of God. When something is spiritually amiss in our life, the problem is never from God's perspective. The first place I need to look is at my life. The first place that we need to look at is our walks with the Lord. We are always the problem. Can God hear what is going on? Well, yes, he can, and he is certainly able to overcome. But he sees the things that we can so easily be involved in and the things of the flesh that we can allow to enter into our lives. We can see how we can spiritually separate ourselves from God. And God's saying, it's not that I can't move, I can't act, can't intervene in your situation. It's not that I'm not able to hear your prayer. So we understand and we know the capability of God but we look at the things that we continue to struggle with and we have to ask, why? I can't just chalk up the state of our society to end times. This is a reflection of the sinful nature of mankind and as we have, as human beings, not as the church so much, as we have reduced God in our culture, we've seen evilness rise within our culture and the prevalence of sin and sin that has even entered into the church and the church, as it has bailed on God's word or has allowed certain things of the flesh to enter in, it's this sin that has separated us, again, from God. Now, when it comes to God's capability, Ephesians 3.20, Paul speaks of him, of who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask to think, according to the power that works within us. So look what the descriptive terms that Paul uses here, that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly. I mean, just, just, just imagine his point. He can't just use one word here. He's got to build upon it. And he's saying this is beyond us, exceedingly abundantly. And then he uses a third, above all that we ask or everything that you pray for. So our God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you pray for. How does he do it? According to the power that is in you, was the power that's in me, the Holy Spirit. So God is able to do that work within us through the power of the Holy Spirit, which is the supernatural power of God that dwells inside of us. And so he's able to do these things, and I have to understand, he's able to do beyond even what I think he's able to do. Have you ever, had, have you ever prayed and God answered the prayer, but he answered it exceedingly abundantly above all that you had asked or even thought that he could do? And you just thought, wow. That was God. That was God. I mean, just the blessings are just amazing in that. So we see the capability of God. So it, that never changes. God is always capable. Well, in contrast to that, we see the spiritual condition of man, and we see even as God is capable, man is culpable. Verse 2, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Not that he can't hear, but he's not going to hear, and again, he works it back to our sin, our sinful condition. Now, what's the main effect that sin has had upon creation, especially humanity, since it entered in? Sin always works a separation between God and man. God is a holy God. Now, think what it means to be absolutely... We'll, we'll attach holiness onto people, and, and that doesn't even begin to approach it. God is holy. That means he is absolutely and completely pure. And since he is pure, sinful man cannot even stand in his presence apart from Jesus Christ because the blood of Christ is the only thing that could purify me to a condition that is able to stand in the presence of God. That's why the writer of Hebrews says you can boldly now enter into the throne room of God because I am not entering into the throne. Well, use the picture of the Bible. You had that day of atonement. That was the holy of holies. The most holy place to the Jewish mind, the holy of holies, was that place where God dwelt amongst his people in the temple. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And so, during that day of atonement, the high priest would enter in. But before he entered in, 
he had to deal with the sins of the people, but then he had to deal with his personal sin. And you must have heard the story before it's tradition. They tied a rope around his waist, just in case. Just in case there was one little sin issue that he kind of forgot about. And he went into the presence of a holy God, and he was struck dead. And the only reason that I can imagine that that was thought of, probably because it happened. Because just think of it, somebody goes in there, they're struck dead. You can't go in there and drag the body out. You're not allowed to. What would they do in that case? I don't know. Because sin always brings all kinds of problems into the equation. But any priest, and I know myself, if I happened to be the priest and the lot fell to me and I was going in to anoint the, the, the ark and, and everything within that most holy place, there would be an excitement. The family would be excited. Mike's going in and I'm going in. And then all of a sudden, just before I went in, it would be, uh-oh. I hope I didn't leave something undone. I hope I didn't forget one thing. And now, take that mindset into the day that you go and stand in the presence of God. I hope I didn't leave one sin undone. And then the angel next to you could say, don't worry about it. It's covered by the blood. You can boldly, in, now the high priest, he couldn't boldly enter in. But you, through the blood of Christ, you're able to boldly enter in because of the blood of the Lamb. And so the main effect that sin has had upon all creation is separation from God. Adam and Eve recognized that in the garden. They had that direct fellowship with God. They walked with God in the cool of the day. Then all of a sudden, sin entered in, and there was that separation. It's why we hear Jesus Christ from the cross crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He had the sins of the world placed upon him, and he was experiencing that separation, that separation from the Father. Again, that's another one of those miracles because how could God be separated from himself? But God's given us that picture of the separation that sin brings to such a degree that Christ was experiencing that phenomena and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save you, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but the iniquities of mankind have separated God from man. This is why there were two compartments in Hades. Remember, we saw the rich man and Lazarus in the Gospel of Luke, and they speak of both of them after they had died. There was two compartments. There was that one on torment where that rich man was, but also there was the one of Lazarus where he was at, and that was referred to as paradise. Now keep in mind, at that point when Jesus was telling of that reality, it wasn't a story, it was a reality, he had yet to go to the cross. And so really what you had there was that everybody who died apart from faith and what God was going to do was in that place of torment. Everybody who died in faith and what God was going to do, they were in Abraham's bosom, they were in paradise, they were in that place. Why? Because the price for sin had yet to be paid. Man could not enter into the presence, the dwelling place of God. They were held in that place until Christ went to the cross the price for sin was paid, and what happened? Christ opened the gates, and man then was able to enter in. But until that price was paid, man could not enter in to the presence of a holy God. And that being the case, we see the magnitude of what Christ was able to achieve upon the cross. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 says, For he himself, for Christ himself, is our peace who has made both one he's speaking of jew and gentile and he has broken down the middle wall of separation another rich illustration as christ was upon the cross we see in matthew what happened to that curtain see you had the holy place and then one third of it was reserved as the holy of holies and that one third was separated from the other by this huge curtain i don't remember the dimensions it was like 40 feet high and i think it was 15 feet wide and it was about six inches thick can you imagine how, how how tough that curtain must have been well it was torn from top to bottom and the idea was it was only god who would be able to do that and the picture there is god looked down after his son had paid the price on the cross i don't need that curtain anymore matter of fact he ripped it because now everybody is welcome in everybody's welcome in because of the lamb of god who has taken away the sins of the world. So separation from God. Think about it. What's the chief attribute of how hell is described in the Bible? It's described as outer darkness. 
And really what we see is it's separation from God for all eternity. That's why it is described as outer darkness, because if God was there, the glory of God would fill hell, and there would be absolute light in there. But since it's outer darkness, that tells me there's not the presence of God. And also it says that it is burning with brimstone. Why would it be burning with brimstone? Brimstone burns. It's an alkali. Now, an alkali, just as an acid, they both burn. Uh, brimstone would be the opposite end of the, I don't remember what the, the pH spectrum, I guess it's called, where you have acid on one side and an alkali on the other. Well, that's what brimstone does, and it's used to decay and to decompose and whatnot. And so that tells me how I can have that burning in hell without a fire. You always see hell without a fire, but if it's described as a dark place, how can you have a burning? Well, it's more of a chemical burn, if you will, than it is a flammable burn. But again, it's all based upon how it's described. It's outer darkness, and this tells me that this is a complete eternal separation from God. And there's where the ultimate penalty is. So even though you're a child of God, though, as we relate to the church now, you have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. But the thing about it is, if you go out and you take a bath in the sewage or out in the world, don't expect to come back and to track it into the Father's house. It's not that you're going to be condemned, you're not, but you're going to be left out until you get cleaned off. And think about now this in the context of our prayers. We've been soiled by the world. Not that the world soiled us, but we jumped into the sewage. I've jumped into the sewage, and, and there I am. I'm all stinky, and I'm all smelly, and now I'm coming before God. If you went out to dinner after service tonight and your waitress says, you know what, I was just changing my oil and didn't have time to clean up, but here's your food, and there, it just had black gunk all over her hands, would you receive it? That's disgusting. No, you, you wouldn't receive it. This thing would happen if you went to your dentist and your dentist was preparing to work on your mouth and telling you that they just had a, a leak in the toilet and she got the toilet fixed. Now she's going to work on your mouth. If she told me that even though no matter how clean she made her hands, I'd have a hard time with that. And then you think you're going to approach a holy God after being immersed in sin and defiled with that and come into his presence that way? It's not that you're not a child. My children, they can do some pretty disgusting things, and I'm not going to embrace them. I'm going to clean them first. I'm going to wait till they get presentable. Then I'll embrace them and whatnot. I still love them. They're still my children. I'm still going to allow them into the house, but there's going to be a cleansing first. Well, that brings us back to that laver. The laver that at the tabernacle, there was that place, the altar would be the first thing that you would come to. That's the place that sin was dealt with. And after you would burn your sacrifice, it would be necessary to go to the next thing, that laver. Now, it was just a bowl basically with water, and you would just need to cleanse. You would need to cleanse your hands. Why? Because it gets soiled. And it's the same thing in our lives. We've dealt, our, our sin's been dealt with at the cross, but I need a periodic cleansing from time to time. Why? Because I'm an imperfect person. Maybe I'm the only one here. I, I stumble at times, and I... Somebody nod their head yes. Danny nod his head yes. <laughs> um, I need that periodic cleansing. Because, yeah, I, I do get soiled. And again, it's not that the, the sewage got on me. Sometimes it's that I got into the sewage. Remember when Jesus was washing the apostles' feet? In John chapter 13, verse 10, Jesus said to Peter... He who is bathed, he who has been completely cleansed, who's been bathed, who's been saved, needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Then he's talking about Judas. But he's saying, he who has been bathed, completely washed, you're going to need to wash your feet. So you take a bath back in those days, and you walk even over to your bed, or maybe you walk to the dinner table or whatever. It was pretty dusty, and it was pretty dirty in those days. And so after you're bathed, you're completely clean, but you do need to wash your feet from time to time until you take another bath. Well, we've been cleansed completely, but from time to time, through the water that is the word of God, we need to be cleansed. and We need to, once again, be restored back to that condition that our, our sins are heard. The capability of God, the condition of man, and now we see in verse 3 the characteristics of their sin, the characteristics of their sin that so easily apply to us as well. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, and your tongue has muttered perversity. 
First, what we see is, is the blood on their hands. Blood on their hands. Well, the idea is, is the death of another by their actions. And now we're talking both spiritual and we could be talking physical. This definitely, the picture would be very rich, very bad, but very rich, of somebody who's just committed murder. There they are. They just committed murder, and now they come in to worship God, and, and they're raising their hands in worship to the Lord, and they got the blood on the person upon their hands. And you can take that into a spiritual condition as well. I just went out and committed this horrible sin. It doesn't even have to be a horrible sin. Don't even think of it as that. I just committed this sin, and I've kind of been going along in this... Oh, outside. Going along in this sinful condition, when God's told me I need to repent, and I haven't repented, but I'll come into the church and I'll raise my hands. Or men would pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. And you're lifting up these hands that are soiled by blood. And is that really a, a prayer that we think, that we believe that God is going to answer? In Ezekiel 33, 6, remember the watchman? And the watchman that was accountable before God? This was a watchman on a wall who was supposed to be looking out for attacking armies or whatever it might be. It says, but if the watchman sees the sword in an attacking army, sees the sword coming, and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. To have blood upon your hands is to be responsible for the death of somebody else. To have your blood upon your head is to be responsible for your own death. And so now what we're talking about here, to bring it all back in context, we're talking about God's people, but God's people who are responsible for others. And so I have to consider really what this means. Well, look at the context again of Ezekiel and bring it over here into Isaiah. I need to consider, what do my hands look like? And, and what I mean by that is uh, these hands... Am I doing what God has called me to do? It's one of the biggest sins that we see in the church today. It's the responsibility that we have been given to share God's word. I've got, or we've got in this city, thousands and thousands of people who are at this moment, I don't know the spiritual ratios of who's saved and who's not. We'll use Matthew chapter 13, where it seems like only 25% of people are saved. So three quarters of this city are going to hell. What am I doing about that? What am I doing about that? If I'm doing nothing, I've got blood on my hands. And am I coming in here and raising those hands in worship? Or am I coming before the Lord and praying and praying and praying with the blood of the hand, on my hands of those people who are perishing? Now, you're not responsible for anybody else's salvation but your own. And there's not a person that's going to go to hell because of you. But also, I have to see my responsibility of obedience before God who has commanded me to go forth and to make disciples. We'll so think of commandments as Old Testament. Well, they're New Testament as well. And Jesus has commissioned his people. He's commanded his people to go forth and make disciples. Somebody argued with me, uh, Hebrews 10, 25, not forsaking the gathering together of the brethren. And they told me, well, that's not in red letters. That's in one of the epistles. It's the word of God. It's the word of God, and that's a command that is in the Bible not to forsake the gathering together of the brethren. Well, does that mean go to church on Sunday? Does that mean Sunday night? What about Thursday? Does that mean Thursday? That means to get yourself to church whenever you're able. We're not going to be legalistic because God wasn't legalistic about it. But he says to have a passion and follow through an action in doing what he has told. And to not do these things, I will see if I look closely that my hands are stained by blood. Why? Well, going back to my sharing of my faith is the illustration here. As I'm not doing that, I'm responsible before God. I'm in sin. Look at the last part of verse 3. And your lips have spoken lies, and your tongue has muttered perversity. Our speech should be dedicated as a living sacrifice to the truth of the gospel. How can I use my voice in a perverse way? Cursing, cussing, hating, hurting, gossiping, anything that I may use it for the flesh, for the purpose of my benefit, but to the detriment of others. And then think that I can effectively use it to glorify God. How do you use the ability to speak that God has given you? Now, we looked at it this morning in Exodus chapter 4. God told Moses that he would fill his mouth 
with his words. God said, I'll fill your mouth with my words, and you go speak to Pharaoh. How did ultimately, I know there was all of the miracles that occurred and the plagues and all of that, but ultimately Pharaoh delivered Israel or released Israel simply because Moses said. And the reason Moses said is because God said. God spoke through him. And look at the privilege that you have. You have the opportunity to speak salvation into the life of somebody else, but you've got to speak. The capability of God, the condition of man, the characteristics of their sins, and then the consequences upon their society, verses 4 through 8. No one calls, calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. They hatch viper eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed, a viper breaks out. Their webs will not become garments, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands, and their feet run to evil, and they have made haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, wasting, and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they have not known, and there is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. In the book of Exodus, after the Ten Commandments were given by Moses, there was delivered by Moses to the people, after he gave the Ten Commandments, were the precepts on how they were to conduct society. There was Ten Commandments, but there's 813 total commandments. 800, those are the Ten, but there's, there's quite a few more in how they are to conduct the details of their society. If you conduct your society this way, then you're in right standing with God and your society will be blessed. If you don't, then you're outside of the will of God. You're in sin, and God's never going to bless sin. And really, the main idea, if you want God to dwell with you, then this is how you need to conduct yourself. Now, a chief attribute of God is God is fair. God is just. That's why Christ needed to die upon the cross. Now, we were all deserving of judgment, and justice demands that we be judged. But God, because of the great love, that he didn't want to judge us. He wanted to give us a way out. But he couldn't just throw a blanket of salvation over all of humanity. Justice demands that those who are guilty pay a price. And so that was a price we couldn't pay, so he sent his son. And his son paid the price for you. And what did Jesus do in that process? He satisfied the demands for justice. So somebody paid the price for you instead. And so God is just, and he demands justice within a society. Now the foundation on which the pillars of justice rest is truth. So we have to conduct our nation according to some sort of truth. The problem with man and his ideas, truth changes. It's very subjective and objective. It's not subjective, it's objective. Whatever he desires for it to be, whatever it might be. But as we plant those pillars upon the word of God, then we have a solid foundation. Then I know what's expected of me then I know what's wrong and what is right. I have a keen sense of justice. If you look in any law book in the 1800s, on the first couple of pages, you'll find the Ten Commandments. It's why, remember, there was a year or so ago, I think it was Arkansas, I might be wrong, there was the Ten Commandments that were removed from the courthouse. They were at the courthouse. They weren't just at the city hall. They weren't at the park. They were at the courthouse. And you see the symbolism there as man removes the Ten Commandments from that courthouse? I don't think it was them. I think it was God. I think God was removing the Ten Commandments because we weren't following them anyway. We had no desire for them anyway. And if without, those, without that basis, without that center for our law, our society be built upon, everything falls apart. Again, we see this occurring. And regardless of how you feel, I'm not going there with the illegal alien thing. What have we done? We had a law, and we ignored the law. And we ignored the law for our financial benefit. We allowed people to come across illegally from the border. We as a society, we have hired them to do work, and we have allowed them to integrate into our society. They've had children born, and their children have gone to school, and just this whole thing, because we ignored the law. But now we want to reenact the law, and now we got this big mess. And again, whether you agree with it or not, that's not the point. The point is, we've ignored the law, and now we've made a mess for ourselves. Look at these people. These people just wanted a better life. 
Now, if, if it's illegal to be here, it's illegal to be here, but you, we have allowed, American people have allowed these people, and we look the other way and have allowed them to come settled in our land, how do you just kick people out like that? In the sight of God, how cruel is that? You've allowed them, you've allowed them to be comfortable, and now you want to expel them? I mean, this whole thing is all centered upon, we've ignored the law. When you ignore the law, justice is not accomplished, and the will of God is not done in a society. And so we see that the cornerstone of a society is the law and the justice, I'm sorry, the desire for justice. What is the biggest complaint against our politicians today? And again, we see it in the sections of scripture that I just read. It's that they're feeding you a bunch of lines that you want to hear, but they have no intent of doing those things otherwise called. They're lying, bold face right to you. On the TV screen, they're lying. Both sides of the, uh, of the aisle, they're lying to you. Now, it may not be as direct as I'm kind of making it out to be. They might just be little white lies. But nonetheless, a lie is a lie. Some of the things that we're being told from either party, they know that they can't do or they know it's not going to happen. And the biggest lie of it all, regardless of who it is, they're not representing the people. The majority of they're not. I mean, they're making these promises that they're going to, but they don't. They don't. This nation ceased from being a nation that is by the people and for the people a long time ago. It's by an agenda and for that agenda. It's ruled not by the people, but by the Supreme Court. And that's why both sides are desperate to load the Supreme Court with their people to get their, you know, we had the, the election uh, with Bush and Gore. That was decided by the Supreme Court. Now, it needed to be, and I understand all that, but we have to see this regression that is going on. Gay marriage. Gay marriage was presented to the people. We voted. And what did we vote for? We voted that we wanted marriage to stay traditional. The Supreme Court entered in, and what did they do? You don't, we know better. We know better. You, you guys were wrong, and so the, now they, they forced that upon us. It's no longer ruled by the people and for the people. That, that ended so, such a long time ago. Psalm 99, verse 4, the king's strength also loves justice. Now, a strong king is only strong in those days, and really today, by the hand of God. The king's strength also loves justice. Well, who else does? Well, God does. You have established uh, equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. So how does the healing of the land come about? And the healing of the land only comes about because of forgiveness of sin. Well, first, verses 9 through 15. Let me read it. Therefore, justice is far from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. For we look for light, but there is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in blackness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at new day as the twilight. We are as dead men in desolate places. We all growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We look for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, before God, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. In transgressing and lying against the Lord, and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands afar off. For truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. For truth fails, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. There's a recognition of their situation, a recognition of sin, and really what it's leading to is, is the first step is repentance. Remember, Jesus Christ came preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John the Baptist came proclaiming repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Before we can be cleansed of what soils us, we first must be aware that we are soiled. How can you get cleansed if you do not understand that you are soiled? Why do I take a shower every night? Because I realize I'm soiled. How do I know I'm soiled? Well, there's the stench of the flesh. There's that bacteria that starts eating the skin cells. It's starting eating the flesh. And it's that smell that the flesh produces. It's why we try rubbing it out and we try scrubbing it out. It's why we brush our teeth. It's why we use deodorant. We're trying to cover the flesh, but the flesh will always prevail. We need that cleansing of the word of God. It's the only thing that is able to cleanse the flesh. 
Now, again, we're clean now because of the Word of God, but have you ever been pretty much clean and smelling fresh and you've taken your shoes off and your feet stink? Well, you need a foot washing. You just need that continual cleansing. What is it that the prophet is pointing out? It's what we see with the decline of our country and even the decline of the church is the, the lack of recognition of the sinful desires and nature and reality of mankind. We have to recognize sin and what sin is. What are they, why are they getting rid of the Ten Commandments? They no, want to, they no longer want to recognize sin and what sin is. And because of that, we redefine marriage, we abort babies, and so on and so forth. Next, if God is going to heal the land and sin be forgiven, there must be divine intervention. And what we just saw is the acknowledgement of sin in verses 9 through the first part of verse 15. But what did they do? They fell off in despair because they couldn't do anything about their sinful condition. But then the last part of verse 15, then the Lord saw it and it displeased him and there, that there was no justice, that there was sin upon the land. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no, and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him and his own righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with the zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, according, uh, according to their deeds, accordingly, he will repay. Fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. The coastland he will fully repay. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. The Redeemer will come to Zion, and those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. So God is going to rise up, and he's going to do a work. Now, he's talking about the enemies, but what you need to see in that, what's the biggest enemy that man has ever, ever dealt with? It's your sinful nature. It's your own sinful nature that desires to drag you down and to bring you to the depths of despair. That's an enemy that you cannot stand against, nor could you fight against yourself. God needed to intervene, and he did so through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we see in these verses I just read is the inability for mankind to help himself. What do we do apart from Christ? We keep sticking fig leaves on the problems of our society, but it's not doing us any good. The people in back in Isaiah's day, they needed to turn to the Savior who would come. We have an advantage. We can turn to the Savior who has come. We've seen the fulfillment of all of those prophecies and how rich that they are and how accessible they are to us today. But instead, in coming to a Savior, repenting and submitting ourselves to him, we're out there sticking fig leaves, just like Adam and Eve, fig leaves and bushes, trying to cover sin. The problem with that is sin is there, and sooner or later, it's going to be exposed. In Romans chapter 11, verse 26, it speaks of that future day. And so all Israel will be saved. That is, as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. So you might be thinking, too bad I wasn't a Jew, born a Jew, because all Israel will be saved. Well, who's real Israel? Those who are descendants of Abraham who walk by faith and not by sight. And he's talking about this deliverer that will, now we know, has come out of Zion. And he will turn away ungodliness and he will turn away sin. Now, this is a work, speaking of this work that he's going to do in Israel, but we need to see it and we need to understand how it relates to us as well. God has always held up Israel as an example. We are not Israel. We are the church. Even though the church age has appeared upon the scene 2,000 years, the promises that God had given to Israel will always hold true to Israel. We see in Revelation, I'm sorry, in Romans chapter 11 and in the book of Revelation, God right now, he is doing a work in Israel. God never stops. But also his attention has turned towards the Gentiles. This is called the church age. Then the rapture of the church is going to happen and God's attention is going to turn towards Israel. There will still be Gentiles saved, but the majority of his attention, if you will, just to kind of get, I can't explain it in any more detail than that, is going to be turned towards Israel. And we see this 144,000, without getting into end-time study here, we see this 144,000 that are going to be evangelists, and we're going to see revival break out to the Jew. 
all these things, all these things that we looked at tonight, I mean, everything in the Bible, but in chapter 59, God seals them all by the surety of his word. Look at verse 21. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My spirit who is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth, speaking to the prophet, shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the, your, the mouth of your descendants. Descendants, says the Lord, from this time and forevermore. God's saying, just as I have spoken these things, I will do these things. Now we look at these things that he has done. God is the same back then as he is today. We see how he works and moves in the lives of men and women. We are his people, and the same just as Israel's prayers were hindered because of their sin, our prayers can be hindered because of our sin. My encouragement to you tonight is to seek out your life and do that examination, that evaluation. Where am I at in the sight of the Lord? The prayers that I have been praying and it never seems like God answers, the word I never seem like I really hear from God. Have your sins separated you from God? Have you kind of well, walk barefoot through the cow fields and got that rotten stuff on the bottom of your feet and you're unable to really enter in and just the sins of the flesh, the sins of the world, let a cleansing. And we're cleansed through simple repentance. Lord, wash me with kisses. I need an inward cleansing. Lord, do that work again of first love that I would come back into right standing with you, that my prayers would be here, healed, my prayers would be heard, and I would be able to enter back in right relationship and all of the benefits of it. Father, once again, we just thank you for your word. Ministered to people, Isaiah was written some 2,700 years ago, ministers to us today. Your word is forever, Lord. We're even told in Isaiah that the flower fade, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God, it endures forever. And because of that, Lord, we just rejoice. And so, Father, we just pray for this evening that you have blessed us because of your word. I pray, Father, where these things are applicable, that, again, we would do that evaluation of our lives, that we would make changes which are necessary because repentance demands a stopping and a turning around and going in the opposite direction, go in the direction back to God. And as we arrive there, Father, we rejoice that that relationship is once again solidified and strengthened, Lord. So, Father, we just thank you for this evening. I pray, Father, for those who have come out tonight that you would bless them. Pray that you would go before them in this week to come. We pray, Father, that as you give us opportunity, we would be found faithful in that opportunity, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You go ahead and stand. Sean mentioned it in his announcements, at least I think he did.